Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Abby, thanks for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Well, can I tell you about my walk in the park this week? I'm going to tell you anyways. Uh, <laughs> so I, I walk every day, probably multiple times a day, uh, through and past and around the park that is on our street with our beloved dog. And I often witness uh, many different things happening at Powell Park. Some of you know that's um, a place of a lot of excitement in good and bad ways. And uh, as I was walking through on this particular time, I had my earphones and I was half listening to a podcast. And uh, I saw kids that were playing in the leaves, which looked harmless, until I realized there was a bit of a commotion going on, uh, and a woman was walking by with her dog, and she stopped, and there was a bit of a confrontation happening with these kids and this woman, and I realized as I was sort of in passing that these kids were in the roughhousing and playing with leaves. They were bending so hard on the branches of a tree that they're actually damaging this tree. And a woman uh, who was witnessing it was having none of it. And she was actually quite livid towards these kids and started getting out her phone and, and threatening that she would call the police if these kids didn't scatter. And most of them did scatter pretty quickly, except for one. Uh, and I know this, this kid from this park, and so I wasn't surprised that he stood his ground. Uh, and he was calling the bluff of this woman that she was going to call the police. And I think she realized, okay, am I actually going to call the police? And so her upping the ante on the threat towards this kid to sort of cease and desist was then turning her phone into a camera and then getting as close as she could to him, flashing her camera in his face, threatening to say, I'm going to video this and post this if you don't get out of here. Then it got real for this kid. That that was more of a threat to him than calling the police was being sought and kind of like seen for this act. And then in his rebellious defiance, and, and knowing this kid, it didn't alarm me as much as his statement should have. But then I asked him how he was doing as he rode off on his bike. And with a bunch of expletives, he insisted that he was going to go home and get a weapon and come back to then threaten her. And I realized I'm watching this take place. And nothing more came of it, thankfully. I'm watching this take place, and as I'm doing it, I'm listening to a podcast that is talking about how gun sales in the States right now is at an all-time high, and the people on the left and the right are buying guns who have never even thought they would have before in their life, but the scariness of the world and the unknown of what will be has just pushed things to a threat of violence which seems like always, all the time, everywhere. That's the world that we're living in the midst of right now. And I, I, saying that, it was sort of a moment for me where it was like I was witnessing a whole bunch of things happening all at once. And it was, it was a stark reality for me. But then I realized, oh, I'm, I don't know if I'm really surprised. That, that kind of seems to be how things are going these days. And, and it just seems to be the speed at which things are moving feel very unsettling. And that we live in this increasingly hostile world. 
more and more of the world as we know it is becoming a scary place where it's increasingly difficult to live at peace with ourselves and with others. And in many ways, I think our life, as we know, has become more and more violent. The people don't just sort of disagree, but they become aggressive towards those who don't agree with seeing things their way. Hate has become easily justified because more and more we're just defining ourselves and our lives around what we are against. And if you're not for us, you're against us. I hear the words of Parker Palmer. He says this. He says, violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. I think that is very telling of where we find ourselves today. I think mostly we're, we're hurting. We're just, we're hurting. We're aching. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're constantly being confronted and challenged, being bombarded with threats of many different kinds. And so it's in our own suffering that we start to kind of lash out against the world as a way of protecting ourselves. And the world, I think, is becoming as, you know, I'm speaking to the world as in our Western experience of the world. It's becoming a violent place because it's becoming a wounded place. That we're just, we're walking around very wounded. Read any online thread, and before you know it, it gets political. Right? Like, you know this, right? Like, you don't have to look very far down until things start just to get unnecessarily heated. And I think in a way of fearing one another, the best defense becomes a good offense, and we work really quickly to kind of lash out and cut others down before they can get to us. Or if you look at most posts on social media, you'll most often see a very calculated image being offered to the world. Our posts are, are highly managed. They're these curated versions of ourselves so that we can be seen and noticed, but without actually being known. The risk of truly being vulnerable, I think, just often feels too costly. And so for us, being the people of God, I... I think often it's easy for us to be swept up in this mode of living in anxiety and just being fearful of others because that just seems to be normative today. There's even in danger then, I think, of attempting to fix the world ourselves, thinking that our own self-improvement by our own means and our own ideals for the world is enough to kind of right the ship but I was reflecting on Thomas Merton's words. And I heard these years ago, and I thought, ooh, that's a pretty bold statement. And I'm hearing them again, and I think, oh, that feels right. Let me read this for you. And it might take you a few years to digest it, like me. He says, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, and that is activism and overwork. He says, the pressure and rush of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of its innate violence. 
to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicted concerns, to be surrendered to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our inner capacity for peace. It destroys fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. Maybe I should just stop there and we can just chew on that. I think he's hitting a nerve. There's a way in which we live that I think we have to be more okay with saying, is this really good? Is this actually the kind of life that we're called to live? And so I think it's actually with a a certain level of desperation that we need to hear these words in 1 John that I think are for us today. 1 John 3, verse 11, as Alexa read it for us, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. As followers of Jesus, this is our movement from image to likeness. We are all made by God with the capacity for love, made in his image, the one who is love. But it is as we live in love that we begin to become more like him, more like the people he has created us to be. And John is reminding us, this is nothing new. This is ancient wisdom that we get to live into. He goes on to say, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death, and anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Of course, it it makes sense that the world is not going to understand this. The nature of love is that it is never self-seeking. It is always seeking a new way to be selfless. Lived out to its full, this kind of love is perplexing and I think maybe even threatening to our world that works and functions on fairness, that you get what you deserve, good or bad. Love exposes this sort of dark underbelly of a world that's propped up by only getting what you deserve. Love isn't fair. It's radically generous. It's always seeking seeking the redemptive way. And I think nothing could be more radical to the human condition that is bent in on itself than to love our enemies. And perhaps in this cultural moment today, nothing could be more counterintuitive than it is to live out this thing of love and especially to love our enemies, those who may not be like us. Hatred of others, as John is telling us, is totally incompatible with the spiritual life because it is denying this process that we are part of of being made into the likeness of Christ, the one who is love. Amalot says it in in a wonderful, candid way, the way that she always says things. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image 
when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. It's pretty good. The most obvious definite sign that the light has come into our life, that we've encountered the life that is love, is that we love. Love is the evidence. It's the proof, the expression that eternal life is residing in us. Hate, like darkness, no longer has a place in our hearts to call home. Light and dark cannot coexist. Love and hate cannot coexist within us. Learning to live without hate does not make us soft. It does not assume kind of a passivity to life. It doesn't mean we become indifferent to things that matter. It certainly doesn't mean we become a doormat for abuse. John goes on to tell us what love looks like. He says it very plainly. It looks like Jesus. 1 John 3.16 This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. John's just kind of laying down his gospel statement. He's like, okay, here it is. Everything hinges on this. And for us, as St. Clair is this community that's learning to be a family on mission together, and we talk about this thing of discipleship, This is probably the best description for discipleship that we could have, of learning what it is to live the life of Jesus, doing the things that he did the way that he did them, is that we learn the way of love. Because that's the way of Jesus. We are given this generous invitation to showing the world that another way is possible. That the way of peace in a violent world, the way of love in a hostile world, John, I think just like Paul when he writes in Corinthians, can't imagine a life with God without love. And there is no vision for a better world without love making it possible. It's in, I mean, if you've been to a wedding, perhaps you've heard 1 Corinthians 13, which is an amazing expression of what love should be within a wedding. But it it carries, there's some teeth to it, when you look at these words and these claims that Paul makes of what love is and what things look like without love. And so Paul, in, at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, yet I will show you the most excellent way. And then he goes on to describe love. So let me read for you 1 Corinthians 13 in sort of a, a reimagined form for the day that we find ourselves in. If I speak online with cunning, crafting, convincing words, but do not have love, I'm only adding to the noise. If I have the gift of expert knowledge and compelling and persuasive vision to change the world and a heroic, tireless effort to do it myself, but do not have love, I am nothing and my efforts are worthless." If I donate all my money to causes that fight injustice and lay down myself on the protest lines, but do not have love, I gain nothing and I have gotten nowhere. Love is not in a hurry. It's not frantic or panicked. It doesn't confuse niceness for kindness. Love is not comparative or competitive, not looking to be seen or noticed. 
Love doesn't keep score to gain leverage over others. It's always giving, never self-seeking. Love is not a ticking time bomb that when provoked, it loses its composure. Love doesn't go around trying to dig up past mistakes as a never-ending threat. Love delights in what is right and good and best. It is always seeking what is true. Love never takes a break, never finds an excuse, never trying for a shortcut. It is completely steadfast, constant, consistently resilient, and courageously hopeful. Love wins every time. It has never been a second-rate option. Love is the way. Walk in it. John drops his statement of all statements to say, live in the way of love. And then he says, well, if you're wondering what love looks like, let me tell you what love looks like. And he lays it out in the clearest of terms. Verse 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. I would say it's hard for Paul's statements here to be any more clear, to be any more emphatic. If you've been reading through 1 John as we've been going, it's a, it's a read that probably only takes about 20 minutes or so. You know that John has this knack for just saying things with such crystal clarity. In a really helpful way, he's just not giving an option here. He's not sort of measuring things by degrees of love. He's saying, listen, if, if you know the God who is love, then you can't help but love. That word pity, it represents compassion. It's, being, it's not just sort of uh, a general feeling of being sympathetic towards someone. It's actually this sense of, on a gut level, being moved and compelled to suffer alongside them. It requires something of love. It is either that the love of God is worked out through our life and is seen most clearly through how we treat those in need, or we're fooling ourselves to think that we know the love of God. We are called to action and in truth. Not just talk about the ideal of love, but to live love. And so I, in the spirit of John, where he just offers in such plain fashion, well, here's practically how you do it in your life. Very simply, I'll offer a few things for us that I hope would be a help to say, hey, well, how do we live out this way of love right here, right now? And that is, there could be much more there were three things that felt poignant to me. One is pray, the other is go beyond your attention, and the other is give what you can. So prayer. Well, I mean, this is who we are as a community. If you've been around us anytime, you know we talk about prayer a lot. And in this, I think it is particularly important because there is a, a mode in which, as Merton said, when we live a busy and frenetic life and we're scattered in many directions, we don't know how to be present and respond when the moment would ask it of us. And so our life ordered around through prayer allows us to learn how to be present before God 
so that when we are passing by in whatever situation, someone who may be in need, we know also how to be present to that person in need. The, the, the posture goes hand in hand. We learn it with God and we learn it with others. And not only that, we actually need prayer as a way of being transformed so that our heart can be shaped to be compassionate. That our efforts to help others are not simply just our efforts, but that we are growing in a way of love and that we are moved and compelled by love. Prayer gives us that inroad to learn that. And I would encourage us as a community, as we find our way and what it looks like to gather together, and, and we are constantly holding that with open hands because we just are trying to do it well, and who knows what the coming weeks and months will be. But the part of us learning how to be together in this space to, again leaves us with this ache and this longing of not knowing how to share a meal together because we have always done that as a community. We've shared breakfast together so that the table can be a place of invitation for anyone and everyone to gather in this space. And we don't have the ability to do that in the way that we want right now, but I would ask us as a community to think and pray with an imagination for what that can look like for us how we can be present in this neighborhood to those that are in need, and that that does not become an afterthought or a sort of nostalgic experience of our community. We don't know how to do this. If we did, we would already be doing it. But we need help. We actually, I think, just we need God to speak in ways that are outside the box that we can see things through right now as we think about what does it look like for us to be a community that gathers around the table again. Prayer. We need prayer. Second is go beyond intention. Go beyond intention. Live by a rule of life. You've heard us say that probably a few times more recently. I was struck again at how important this is, that we live beyond sort of our own inspiration, but we actually have our lives guided by principles and by disciplines that help shape us and point us towards the way of love. I didn't realize that Martin Luther King Jr., if you were with him and marching alongside him in the civil rights movement, you were participating in a rule of life in order to do that work of activism. And two of the things that they did was to read the Sermon on the Mount and to pray for their enemies. That was a rule of life that they lived by in order to see God's kingdom come. And so I think, I think we need help. I think, I think a lot of us mean well, and we want to help others as we see of need, but often it's not convenient, or we feel at a bit of a loss on how to do the, the sort of best way of giving and helping, and so we just don't quite know how to, and, and we, we just we don't. And it's hard. And so what, what are things that we could put in place in our life that help us beyond sort of just being inspired one moment to the next? Are there ways of giving or are there practices that we can have that will point us towards a way of love, whether we want to in the moment or not? I don't, this is a learning curve in my own life, but as anytime I pass someone, whether it's walking on the sidewalk 
uh, or sometimes driving a car. If someone is uh, in need, very visibly in need, and asking for money, I often find I don't carry cash money on me these days, and that's probably been a few years now that I don't. So usually, if someone's asking for money, I don't actually have money to give in that moment. But perhaps my own little rule of life is that I never want to pass by and not acknowledge that they are a human being. And I want to affirm their dignity. And even if I don't have money to give or I can't help specifically in the way that they would be asking for in that moment, I do want to be fully present to them. I do want to look them in the eyes. And I, won't, I want them to know some level of care. And there's, there's a lot of times when I don't feel inspired to do that but because I've told myself I need to do this, it actually is a really helpful curve for me to point me in the way of love. And I don't even know if that's the way to do it. That's just how I'm learning to do it. And I think of that specifically around so many tents that we walk by in our city now. I have a very helpless sense of how on earth do we rescue that situation? And I don't know the answer to that. But I'm committed to praying as I see people who are trying to find places of home in kind of homeless places. And when I'm able, I will seek to acknowledge them as people and not to look past or to certainly not look down in disdain. Maybe we need ways, rule of life, to go beyond our intentions and what would help and guide us and how we react to a hostile and what feels like a violent world. And maybe how you conduct life online needs some boundaries, some rules of life. That to have the capacity to engage with news, maybe you need to decide it's at this time of day for this length of time that I'm going to give myself a window to digest what's going on in the world. Because I know if I'm just scattered with it that all throughout the day, that's going to keep pulling me in to an anxious or angry place, and that's not good. And maybe we need actually helpful boundaries that help limit us where we just don't really maybe know how to conduct our own limits. Or maybe we, we have in place uh, a rule for ourselves that says, you know, I won't reply to something online until I've given myself a day to think about it. And maybe that's a wild notion. Maybe say an hour. Just give yourself some space to like, oh, okay, I'm going to step away. I'm going to think about what I want to say before I say it. Maybe I'll even ask someone else if they think this is a wise response before I say it. Like if you do any of those things, the world might be a better place. Like those are like simple, simple things. But having rules for ourselves that point us to the way of love is probably actually what we need because the pull, what's normative for us, gets us dragged down to places that I just don't think we want to go. And then third, to say, give what you can. This is trying to kind of move us out of the ideals, to say, oh, I could only give if blah, 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 blah. Like where we create these conditional statements to say, when I have this, then I will give that. I don't, maybe look at, at what this opportunity has become for us of our refugee sponsorship. If you sort of remained in the ideal to say, well, I can only give unless I can make a serious dent of $100,000, like, well, you might be waiting a long time to have the money to help that, and we didn't have that time. So give what you can, even if it is small. Jesus teaches us this in the Gospels, that it is not the amount that matters. 
And I'm not even talking necessarily or exclusively about money, though I think our money does matter in this. It's also a thing of our time and our attention. Give what we can. And sometimes our attention is the most precious commodity that we have in our day. We're going to take communion together, and I'm going to lead us through this. That 1 Corinthians 13 passage, so some of you have at here with us, uh, we have individual little packages of, uh, well, I don't, I, technically it's juice and bread, but I'm not sure if it is juice and bread. <laughs> and if you're at home, you can gather together something that's edible and drinkable as we share in this together. This passage in 1 Corinthians 13, describing this way of love, the writing, the chapters that come before it, actually have a lot to say about those in need and about this, about the table. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. Matt reminded us a few weeks ago that when we come to the table, Jesus is the host. We get invited, but we don't get to pick who else gets invited to the table. And there's a chance that our enemies get invited to the table as well. It's one loaf for us all. And then the next chapter in Corinthians, Paul goes on to say, He's talking about how something uh, really bad has happened in that community in Corinth. He said, there's become a division at the table. You've separated out those who have and those who have not. Some of you are eating together out of the abundance of what you have, while some of you go hungry. And he's very strong to say that should not be. He says, As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Of all the places in the world, this place should be the place where there's no division and no class system that is separating us out. We have no other option but to take this together. Because we share being made in the image of God. That's what we all have in common. We share the same loaf, those who have little or those who have much. And then he says this in chapter 11. He said, For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so you can take bread and you can do this in remembrance of him. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, In my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
And so he took the cup and he offered it to his friends. He said, do this in remembrance of me. says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. St. Clair, as we participated in this together, we have a confession. It's sort of, as a community, I would say it's part of a rule of life for us. It's something that keeps us pointed to Jesus that is beyond ourselves. And so we read this together week in and week out. I think it'll come up here for us. Would you read this with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed, by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. And so, St. Clair, would you receive these words from Psalm 103? These are words that God would speak over us. I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. I will not always accuse nor harbor anger forever. I will not treat you as your sins deserve or repay you according to your iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is my love for you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. St. Clair, it's appropriate that we respond in worship for what God has done for us.